yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein again in uh, another episode of our series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that I have been struggling with, actually, a little bit, um, because it's not a traditional topic, but it's a topic that anybody who really is interested in sort of the infrastructure and inner workings of the archaeology world is going to have to be at least somewhat familiar with. And I think after all these programs, I think most people would be interested if they're tuning in, is how the systems work and how archaeologists organize themselves and what kind of uh, organizational frameworks they have, how they put together their uh, collective interests, and ultimately how they transmit and organize their information for uh, distribution and how we communicate to the general public. And there are a variety of different types of organizations that are involved in these various facets of archaeology. And what I have sort of decided to do in conjunction with some of the folks I work with on the program is to look at the various archaeological organizations that are spread all over the country and indeed all over the world and to try to give people sort of an indication of how these organizations work and what they do in terms of trying to transmit the message of archaeology and to sort of develop an organizational framework for professionals to function together and to exchange information amongst themselves as well as to disseminate information to the general public. So I thought that a very reasonable organization to begin with is one that I'm on the board of, and that is the Archaeological Institute of America, which I think is probably one of the oldest and certainly one of the most venerated archaeological organizations in the country and even the world. Um, it is a very large group of people, and as you will be discovering in the course of this broadcast, a very diverse group of people that brings together both professionals and amateurs and folks who are very, very interested in the topic from a variety of different backgrounds that are, uh, that are very unique. My guest for this initial program is the president of the New York chapter of the Archaeological Institute of America, which, by the way, is the largest local branch of the organization generally, and that is Dr. Paula Lazarus. Paula, Dr. Lazarus is the current president, as I said, of the AIA, the New York Society. She is an assistant professor at St. John's University in New York City. She received her BA in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, a master's degree in anthropology at Bryn Mawr College, and her PhD at Boston University. Dr. Lazarus has worked, lived, and traveled extensively in Italy over the past 
30 years. Her research interests range from the protection and conservation of antiquities to changing land use patterns in Italy and the use of geographic information systems. You'll be hearing that a lot as the programs roll along, by the way. This is high-technology mapping. And she has used that for better visualizing and understanding the past. Dr. Lazarus is also very involved in the exciting and stimulating world of reacting to the past pedagogy, which gives students a challenging way to take command of their studies through intense role-playing activities organized around pivotal events in history and the documents and literature that surround them. And in this regard, I think one of the functions that we are all pursuing in archaeology is to sort of find new venues and new avenues for disseminating our perspectives and for making it, in a sense, more user-friendly to the archaeological consumer. So it is my pleasure to discuss this issue of the Archaeological Institute of America with Dr. Paula Lazarus. What was their mission and what exactly did they try to do from the outset. I mean, this is a period, the late 19th century, when archaeology was largely in the purview of, of what we now call antiquarians, people who were by and large fairly sophisticated and higher members of society who looked at the past as sort of a, a very sort of interesting curiosity and tried to really sort of piece together um, the, the history of mankind, if you will, from the artifacts that they found on the ground and, and, and from historical collections. So what, what motivated them and how did this get started and uh, how did it catch on? Interestingly, their, their base is really very similar to that old base. And, and you might say what's even more interesting is how they've moved from that or changed from that with the times and over time. But they were, to a large degree, a product of their time. On their own website, you can find a quote from that first president talking about his inspiration for the Institute, where he said, and I'll quote him here, The night of time far surpasses the day, and it is the task of archaeology to light up some of this long night with its torch, which burns ever with a clearer flame with each advancing step into the darkness. Unquote. Very so literal. Is very, yeah. very poetic, right? But very much yeah, of its time. And and these were by and large, let's let's be frank here. These were pretty well healed people. I mean, these people were people who were very prominent, well to do, upper crust in many cases. I would imagine in 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 the situation in Boston, New York, a lot of blue blood people. And uh, these were folks who were were pretty well known and uh, were trying to sort of disseminate their message into uh, in, into higher elements of society. Is that correct or no? I don't know, actually, who all of the individuals were, but certainly as a university professor, he would have had colleagues who were professionals as well as the folks that you were talking about who would come to public lectures and be interested in improving themselves or being more informed when they traveled around the world. And to some degree, that legacy has remained very much a part of the AIA. That is, while they are a professional organization made up of many academics of different types from different kinds of universities all throughout the United States and even throughout the world, in fact, today, the society has more than 250,000 members and more than 100 local societies in the U.S., Canada, and overseas. So all of those people are not archaeologists. Clearly. 250,000? 
That is correct. Wow. So uh, tell us a little bit about the infrastructure and how it's organized and how how they have a, a, a central base. I mean, where is the central office? And obviously there must be literally dozens and dozens of chapters because 250,000 members, that's a very daunting figure. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, so to, and, and how it's organized. Go ahead. Today, um, the Institute, which claims as its its position as the North America's oldest and largest organization that's devoted to the world of archaeology, is based in Boston. It has offices that it rents out of Boston University at this point in time. And as far back as 1879, it began to develop its uh, relationships and its outreach uh, programs. In 1906, the United States Congress actually chartered it, gave it an official charter, and it's the only of our professional organizations in the United States that um, deal with archaeology, and we have many, as you know, that has such a charter. So I guess to them, the national organization, to a large degree, promotes the outreach and education and involvement of people, dissemination of, arche- of archaeological knowledge, uh, the preservation of archaeological sites. It encourages students and lay people to become involved in archaeological projects and so forth. It runs an annual meeting that is not just for um, the participation of academics who share their recent research with one another, but is open to all of these members. And unlike many of its sister organizations, the Society for American Archaeology, the Society for Historical Archaeology, and so forth, it is open, very much open, to lay members, that is, non-academic archaeologists. And so even on its academic level, it's encouraging its members or its academics to speak in a way that everybody could share and understand the information. And that is rather unique to this society. It really believes in public understanding of the material record. You know, it strikes me as very curious. I mean, I don't know if it's coincidental. Maybe you know more about this than I do. But the charter was formed, you say, in 1906, which is uh, the same year, if not one year, before the uh, institution of the Antiquities Act, which Teddy Roosevelt was instrumental in passing, where there was a consciousness of archaeology, antiquity, and preservation. And I'm just wondering if the two worked hand in hand, because it would seem like somebody like Roosevelt Teddy Roosevelt and, and people that he was associated with in this part of the country would have sort of worked hand in hand to make sure that preservation, conservation, archaeology, and antiquity would all be part of, of sort of a higher goal. Is is there any connection there? Do you know about that or not? I couldn't answer to that directly in terms of, yes, I know they were influenced by each other. However, it's probably no con- coincidence that in the U.S., archaeology is largely the purview of the Parks and Recreation Department. Of course, of the right. And, and so the National Parks Service. That is an extension Service. of that. Of course. And we will be back and uh, discuss these matters and especially focus on the unique and very positive interaction between lay people and the general public and the professional community under the aegis of the Archaeological Institute of America after these, ba- these words. We'll be back in a minute. 
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra geoarc.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Joe Schuldenrein. I'm back. Uh, and we're discussing uh, the Archaeological Institute of America as one of the founding and most prominent institutions of archaeological interchange between the professional community and lay people in the general public. And I think that when a lot of people hear the word archaeology, one of their immediate associations is, of course, classical cultures of the of the Mediterranean, specifically the central and eastern Mediterranean areas, uh, Greece, Rome, Persia to some degree, and certainly the biblical areas, uh, the Mesopotamian, Egypt, but, but most significantly, I think, the classical world, and the classical world that gave us Western civilization and, and, and Roman Greece. And I think there's no coincidence here that this sort of immediate sort of sexy association that we make between traditional cultural development, the sort of initial underpinnings of Western civilization is associated with some of the most prominent 
initiatives undertaken by the AIA, or the Archaeological Institute of America. And uh, over the break, Paula and I were discussing exactly how the various uh, schools, American schools for archaeological research in the classical archaeological world was estab- were established. And I think, Paul, I want to ask you a little bit about how that happened and how the American footprint, if you will, in the classical world was established through the AIA and what it did. Well, uh, right after its founding, a year later, in 1880, the AIA started sponsoring archaeological excavations abroad, which is really pretty surprising for a relatively new organization at the time. Sure. It sponsored research in the southwestern United States and in Mexico, but in the following decades it really focused on Crete and Iraq, Italy, Greece, and then also Guatemala, North Africa, and Turkey. And that must have led them to want a stronger presence for scholars who would spend long periods of time there studying or for materials they weren't taking out of the country to study them better, to create libraries for research. And so in 1882, they established the American School of Classical Studies at Athens in Greece. Mm -hmm. And then in 1895, they established the American School of Classical Studies in Rome in Italy. And that also led to the establishment of a lecture program, maybe we'll talk about that later, which then has continued to this day, allowing for the fruits of those researches abroad to be shared uh, around the country. In 1899, they established the American School for Oriental Study and Research in Jerusalem, And then they ended up back in the United States, possibly after courting Teddy Roosevelt, in 1907, where they established the School of American Archaeology in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which becomes the School of American Research. So they really have um, put themselves out there to help establish many very important research organizations right from the very start. And those of us who work in that part of the world a fair amount know that when you go there and you, when you undertake and, and develop research designs and sustained programs for archaeological research in the Mediterranean and, as uh, Dr. Lazarus has said, also in various parts of the New World, including the southwest and Mexico, you sort of automatically align yourself with that that school that already has its own infrastructure within those countries. I mean, these are now institutions and organizations that are well over a century old. What can you tell us, Paula, about how they work and how they support and sustain scholars who have particular research in, say, the classical world? Let's talk about Greece, Rome, and Jerusalem, where some of the most prominent schools are. How are they funded? How are they sustained? And again, you know, they've extended for well over 100 years. How do they run? The schools themselves have become rather more uh, independent in terms of their structure, but the Archaeological Institute of America continues to raise money in support of those schools. And then they, very importantly now, provide fellowships to scholars and to students to support study at those schools. So the schools now have their own um, elected and hired people who run their programs locally, and then scholars come there in order to study for longer or shorter periods of time. So there are fellowships such as the 
uh, Anna C. and Oliver C. Coburn Fellowship to support the study at the School of American School in Athens or the Harriet and Leon Pomerance Fellowship in Bronze Age Archaeology, so it could be for a very specific area or other ones for the different schools at the American Academy of Rome and so forth. So they, they do it through supporting individuals or projects that are going to be worked on there. Now, are there joint projects between, say, the American school and local universities, say, in Greece or in, in Italy or in Israel or Palestine that, that work together with uh, the AI, under the supervision or under the umbrella of the AIA, or how do these joint ventures they, they run? They work more often through the individual scholars who are affiliated with both of those places. So the American uh, school in Athens will also be working with scholars from particular universities in the U.S. and in um, in Athens. And, of course, it's very important, depending on the country you're in, that many projects have local people involved or local, not just the ministries, but also um, local scholars, because many of the host countries are looking for those collaborative projects and for the um, financial assistance they get by working with scholars from abroad. And to that end, because the AIA has also sponsored or given money in the ter- in terms of grants, et cetera, to different projects, whether now very much uh, in terms of preservation, they're spending a lot of money to help projects for preservation, but also uh, for furthering research of one kind or another, uh, whether it's outreach and education, there are grants for that, there are grants for site preservation, there are excavation support for professional AIA members working around uh, the world. So through those programs, they, um, they further the projects. Now, of course, there are so many people in so many places, you'd have to have endless pockets to be able to support it. They are, after all, a nonprofit organization. And a lot of this money comes from individual benefactors. And, all of it. And- all of it comes from individual benefactors. And, of course, they support a sustained long-term series of projects. I know that certainly in Greece and, and, and in Israel there are projects that have been going on for, for years and years and years that uh, raise grants and also have major contributions from the benefactors and from the folks who are interested in supporting these uh, research ventures. And I assume that you probably have had a little bit of interaction with that because of your work in in Italy. Actually, I should say, surprisingly perhaps, not. Okay. Because I always ended up working in the beginning when I was first in Italy for the Italians, directly for the Italians, uh-huh. and I was the only American on those projects. And then when I moved over to a British project, it was a British project and we were getting money mostly from British sources. So right. in my own personal experience, I have not been the lucky person to benefit from their largesse. So how did you get involved with the AIA? I got involved first as a student, going to, as a graduate student, going to give papers. And that was an interesting experience for me because the Archaeological Institute of America appeared to me at the time to be mostly an organization for classicists. But in fact, they have a much broader outlook than simply the classical world. And so there was a place for people who were also studying prehistory, which was my general area. That said, I also gave papers at the Society for American Archaeology, which had a lot of prehistorians, but everybody was really focused on 
the Americas. And so I worked in Europe. And so one of the things you learn as you're coming up through the field is to find a niche within these larger organizations, within subgroups or um, symposia that are arranged that allow you to explore and share the information from the areas that you're working in. Later, I was uh, teaching here in New York, and I would often bring my students to various lectures that the New York Archaeological uh, Institute of America Society would sponsor. And so like many of these local societies, the New York AIA sponsored seven or eight or nine lectures a year. They were they are, were and are free and open to the public on a wide variety of topics. And every year I would find the topic that best fit the class that I was doing and I would have my students come and see what real archaeologists were doing on the ground and not just have to listen to lectures by me about what archaeologists do. And after I'd been several times, the then president of the New York Local Society, Elizabeth Bartman, who is currently the president of the National Association, said to me, if you're bringing your students all the time, you really should become a member. Right. And Makes so sense. I did. So I became a member again. I had when I was a graduate student, and then memberships were expensive when I was looking for a job. And then once I had a job, I rejoined, and this is the case for many people. And I rejoined the organization, and no sooner had I done so than some of my colleagues there began to say, can you help us do this? Would you help us do that? Would you get involved in this? And before I turned around, Karen Rubinson said, we have an opening on the board. Somebody has had to leave the board. Will you step in? Oh, sure. What do board members do? I said to them, actually, what I said to them was, well, I guess I will, but I don't have any money. Because to me, board Boards were people there are going to ask you to give in, give money. Right, and they said, well, no, if you have energy and interest and you can work, that's fine. We understand that you're a struggling to be professor, not a problem. And so I joined the board, and that led to my then being elected a vice president on the board, and then two years ago to being elected president of the New York Society. Now, how big is the New York Society? So the New York Society has over 400 members, and we vary in how much over that, 430, 480-some-odd members. As you mentioned uh, earlier, it's the largest of the local societies. And to date, we currently sponsor eight free lectures a year. Three of those lectures come to us as part of the Archaeological Institute of America's national lecture program. They're provided to our organization free by the national organization. So they have every year a series of lectures, quite a number of them on different topics, that they send out all over the United States to give these free lectures through their local societies to the general public. And each local society, depending on its constituency, can ask for very technical lectures or very uh, open and for the public lectures or something in between. In New York City, where many of the universities run their own lecture programs, we don't need to compete with them. And we have a very wide and varied and educated public here in New York City. And so we generally get a kind of mixed level um, presentation from the folks at uh, National, and they're often very well received. And then the rest of our lectures, we raise money through contributions, through our memberships, and through the Friends of the New York Society, that is, 
our fundraising arm, to provide money to give small honorariums and throw receptions for the other lectures that we host throughout the course of the year. And we generally look for people that are either passing through New York and we can snag them because they're also going to be talking at Columbia or NYU, or we ask our friends and friends of friends or people who live not too far away so they don't, we can't pay their travel costs to come and lecture for us. And on that note, we are going to take another break, and we will be back with Dr. Paula Lazarus of the Archaeological Institute of America, New York City chapter, after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schildenrein, and as you heard, this is Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And our topic for today's show is major archaeological organizations. As I had mentioned earlier, we are going to intersperse some of our more technical uh, 
discussions and programs with a variety of programs that focus on archaeological organizations and the types of structures that archaeologists have for disseminating their message on archaeology and cultural heritage. And uh, today's program is on the topic of the Archaeological Institute of America, which is now well over a century old. It's about 120 years old and possibly the most venerated archaeological umbrella group in the United States. And I, it's my pleasure to discuss the function and role of that organization with Dr. Paula Lazarus, who is assistant professor of archaeology and anthropology at St. John's University and is the president of the largest regional organization in the AIA, which is the New York chapter. Uh, but Paula, I'd like to turn now to some of the initiatives that the AIA has taken on, a couple of them that we have discussed in the break, and specifically talk to us a little bit about their very large-scale site preservation program and what that's doing. So... The society set up this really fabulous site preservation program that provides major grants of up to $25,000 to innovative projects designed to preserve archaeological sites through outreach, through conservation efforts, education, and community involvement. And so they give grants to preserve the sites and to create a positive impact on the local community. And an interesting thing about this is that if you want, for example, to be a World Heritage Site, one of the requirements is that you can show how you're going to protect that site. So a lot of countries don't have the finances initially to get started or to do a piece of that project. And so while this can't pay for everything, it's one way to um, give a hand to places that are threatened, and to help implement and disseminate best practices that might be able to help these um, cities, sites, and countries better address their problems. So, for example, they are supporting a project in uh, Bate Chamar in Cambodia, but also in Easter Island in Chile, in Black Ferry uh, in Ireland, the in Assos in Turkey. There's a very wide-ranging collection of things here. Uh, yeah, an undersea project at Hoyo Negro in Mexico, a seaside uh, excavation in Quisonegra in Cyprus, but also projects in Belize, in North Carolina, at Telmozan in Syria, in Kenya, and so forth and so on. So there's quite a number of uh, projects that range from Civil War sites to Near Eastern Tells. And so the uh, the individual institution, for example, a university or a professor with uh, an interest in a particular area would simply approach the AAA and uh, write up a grant and try to get support for his preservation project if for that's where he For a particular so project. So, ex for example, the Mexican project is in an underwater cave with human skeletal remains, and the project is co-led by Dominique Grisolo of San Diego State and his colleagues from Mexico's International uh, National Institute of Anthropology and History. Okay. And so and the money, though, is very specific. Um, so to protect the site from the uh, through the construction of a secured entrance gate to the cave, 
fencing, signage in case there are divers who want to see what it is, to build a road and stairway and a dive platform for divers. So instead of just letting people go in and pick off pieces, it now becomes a real archaeological site. And one of the major missions, and I think this is where archaeology is going in so many different ways, it's about preservation not necessarily excavation. It's about maintaining the past for the future and making sure that there's no destructive elements acting on it and trying to reinforce the security and the natural preservation in the vicinity of the site to make sure that the site will be around for generations to come. And then that becomes a major focus of the grant, correct? Absolutely. And so, for example, in the Cambodian um, site at Bate Chamar, this is together, it supports a project, a World Heritage Watch program at the site, and it's trying to actually help and ensure that the benefits of tourism are developed in such a way that not only will the site be preserved, but that the local community will benefit in some way, and so that they don't feel that all the money is going somewhere else and their community is being left in the dust, but to implement specialized training programs so that local residents can, in English, guide tours, run outreach programs. They run outreach programs for the entire community to increase the awareness of the value of the site and work with them as a group to secure long-term preservation of the site itself. And these programs obviously have very major economic ramifications too because in many Absolutely. areas, yeah, because in many areas your sites are in remote locations, in poor locations, and a major component of the economy would be the preservation of a potentially major tourist site, the maintenance of it, and protection certainly against the ravages of erosion and weathering that have destroyed so many of our most valuable sites, especially in third world countries where the financial resources for this type of protection simply doesn't exist. Yeah, and I would say one of the things that really is important about this program is that they've they've put their fundraising power behind it. Right. It's nice and well to say it's important that everybody should do it, that we should educate, that you should do outreach, et cetera, et cetera. It's another thing to get out there and run galas and raise money and be able to award $25,000 rents to people. Right, of course. And so and they really have made their commitment in a very concrete way. And there are obviously networks of donors and concerned citizens who are very involved in this, in addition to the lecture programs. And fundraising is going to the individual site preservation programs that have a very, very specific focus. And these grants are awarded, obviously, to universities and to interested groups and organizations like uh, Global Heritage to undertake these programs over the long term. Tell me a little bit about the CHAMP program, which I heard about, the uh, cultural heritage and uh, military and war zones and, and, and how that program functions. So this is a very, if you wish, um, brave uh, step by the part of the AIA. As a reaction to the looting of the Iraqi National Museum in Baghdad in 2003 and the damage to cultural sites in the area, the Archaeological Institute of America and the Department of Defense to try to work together to 
uh, improve cultural heritage awareness. And I know you've spoken with people from this area, uh, notably Elizabeth Stone, who was very, very important in training many people on what to recognize and how to protect these sites. Certainly, her input right. was crucial to this. And the goals of this program became to build a collaborative relationship between uh, military personnel and professional archaeologists in order to promote understanding both ways of what military needs were, but also for them to understand what cultural site preservation was all about and to be aware of the sensitivities of local populations. So the they tried to work out a program that would offer opportunities for AIA professionals and members to participate in Department of Defense initiatives that were specifically geared toward global heritage stewardship and to try to teach good practice, if you would, good cultural or heritage practice. And to that end, they began to train military personnel on U.S. bases about the history and culture and historical sites, artifacts, and laws, importantly, regarding the trafficking in antiquities. And then to educate the military personnel on the host nation history and heritage and compliance with various preservation treaties and regulations and so forth. And so um, then AIA President Brian Rose really took the lead in this. And on some level, from the public or from the professional community, took a certain amount of flack for going out and working with the military because not everybody was supporting the war. And yet his point of view was, yes, but we have archaeological sites there, and if people don't know what they are and they wouldn't recognize a um, sun-baked brick if they fell on one, then right. we can't tell them, oh, don't run your tank over that. That's not nothing. It's a thing, and it's important, and here's why it's important. And so they began these programs um, together with uh, Dr. Lori Rush, who was an uh, archaeologist at Fort Drum, and Laura Childs, who was the communication coordinator, and Brian Rose, to create these programs. Lori Rush also designed uh, playing cards. I don't know if you've seen them. For um Pardon? Have I've you seen, seen them? that, yeah. yeah. Right. So they were one set for Iraq and one set for Iran. And they all have pictures of important archaeological sites. And if you turn them all over, the backs of the cards will actually make a picture of a, like a puzzle of an archaeological site. But there's information on them. You can use them as regular playing cards, and that was the idea, that soldiers would use them when they were bored. But they would also be learning about the archaeological sites. And on that note, we're going to take our final break, and we'll be back with Dr. Paula Lazarus of the Archaeological Institute of America, New York chapter, after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are back with our final segment on uh, major archaeological organizations. And today's episode and today's discussion is centered on probably the senior archaeological organization in the United States and one of the senior archaeological organizations in the, uh, in the world, which is the Archaeological Institute of America. And I want to uh, speak to Dr. Paula Lazarus. Paula, can you tell me a little bit more about this very interesting interplay between the uh, the professional community and um, the uh, and and uh, individuals who are involved in the outside world? The most unique and interesting things about this particular organization that not only are the members very varied. But everyone on the board and even on the local boards are very varied. Um, local societies might be housed in universities and smaller communities. But, for example, here in New York, we're a very broad group of people, uh, businessmen, retirees, uh, archaeologists and art historians from local universities, and uh, people who own their own businesses that deal with archaeology in a variety of ways. So right. we're a, a very varied group of people, and our audience is also very, our members are very varied, and that's true all the way up to the national level. So people who come to this might be school teachers looking to improve their curriculum in the elementary or high schools, but they're also citizens who love to travel and want to be more informed when they travel. The AIA also runs 
an extensive travel program at a variety of price points, cruises and fancy very small site type tours for people to travel and learn at the same at the same time, and they send professors from all across the country of different specialties out to lecture with these uh, with these tours. And in the same way, here we work together in building our programs and in having our discussions. It's not just professionals telling everybody else how it should work, but we get feedback and questions and uh, a lot of input from the lay community. And the interaction is pretty strong. I know that certainly from the meetings that we've had, and I'm on the board at this point too, uh, there's a strong interaction and there seems to be a sort of a, a joint purpose in trying to promote the interests of archaeology, both through participation and lectures, these tours and cruises, as you mentioned, and certainly for financially uh, underwriting a lot of these efforts and ventures in the interests of, of uh, both the public and the professional communities. I'm talking about not just projects, but certainly trying to disseminate the word and to get these lectures uh, as extensive as possible and in as many places as possible. Yes, and I think that's actually a very exciting thing. Instead of, you know, we're often accused in the media today, we, the academia, as being in our uh, ivory tower but I think this is one example of a group who, to the outside world, might actually look like the epitome of the ivory tower. What more so than the classicist, right? And yet, Absolutely. here is an organization that has really tried to buck that image in a lot of ways. So local societies might be in the southwest of the United States, and of course they're going to have people who are fascinated with mummies and with the ancient Greek oracles and so forth, and no reason why they shouldn't be. But they're also going to get lectures about what's going on locally, about Chinese immigration to uh, Austin, Texas, or about uh, local mission archaeology in the southwest, whatever it happens to be. And so it allows people to explore both their own local heritage, but also that farther afield. And the assumption is a good assumption, I believe, that the general public is more than educated and interested enough to know what's going on, even in the past and even in places far away. And frankly, in a time nationally where perhaps we underestimate what people are interested in, what they're willing to do, it's amazing that these lectures and these 100-plus societies or 200-plus societies around the country can actually fill 30 to 100 people in a room to listen to stuff about archaeology. Sure, sure. And I think uh, one of the ways in which, and we talked about this earlier, and I think it cannot be emphasized too strongly, one of the ways in which the focus of archaeology is changed all over the world is not so much to place the primary effort in excavation and removal of artifacts and uh, exposure of great temples and pyramids and classical structures. But right now, I think the major issue is preservation, and the issue is how to preserve for the future once uh, 
we we have actually discovered many of these sites to prevent them from decaying, from eroding, and and effectively to preserve uh, research opportunities for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years when our research capabilities are going to be so much greater and more powerful through technology and we can maximize our information yield and recovery yield so much by keeping these sites in place and making sure that they don't get destroyed so that we give archaeologists of the future uh, the chance to use their toolkits, as if you will, to, uh, to provide an even greater wealth of knowledge than we have now. And I think that's one of the major emphasis that I see all over archaeology. And I think you probably would agree with me that this is where we need to go because oh, archaeology absolutely. is... Yeah, archaeology is a finite resource once it's added. I was just going to say, can't say it enough times. Archaeology is a non-renewable resource. Resource, right. And for that reason, too, I think one of the great purposes of these uh, organizations and lectures and outreach is to, if you wish, enlighten people about the damage that comes from collecting from the irresponsible uh, removal of materials from sites all over the world of all kinds and to make it clear why the trafficking in antiquities is more than just an annoyance or a lot of whining on the part of professionals in a particular field, but rather that the knowledge that we gain about the various cultures around the world in an ever- uh, more global and networked society is that much more important absolutely couldn 't say it better, and I think that uh, the Archaeological Institute of America is certainly on the cutting edge as a forward thinking operation and as a forward thinking organization that eventually will pave the way for our future archaeology and for certainly future preservation, which, as, as, as we've emphasized, is probably the most important immediate goal, especially in areas where resources are in danger because of military conflict and natural, and, uh, natural catastro- catastrophes and disasters. And poverty. And poverty, no question. And on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank my very special guest, uh, Dr. Paula Lazarus of St. John's University. And uh, I will tell you that we will be doing a number of shows on archaeological organizations as we move along and as we progress and take a look at what our mission is and where we're going in this profession. And I want to encourage you to stay tuned next week for another installment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Thanks and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.